0: Hello and welcome to the Locked On Canucks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm Justin Morissette and this is your Locked On Canucks for Thursday, January 30th, the evening of January 30th. Anyways, it's probably the morning of the 31st by the time you're listening to this as I sit down to record this at around midnight, but uh, do want to bring another show your way before the Canucks are back in action against the Islanders bright and early on Saturday morning, which means I'm probably going to put something out. Uh, in the early evening, late afternoon on Friday, which means, I mean, technically, you're probably going to get two shows on Friday. But let's call this one Thursday because I haven't gone to sleep yet. It's still Thursday for me. You don't care about any of that. You want to hear some Canucks talk. And I got plenty to discuss from the last couple days. Of course, Wednesday night, the Canucks go into uh, San Jose, into the Shark Tank. Is it still called HP Pavilion. I want to think that it is. Uh, it's one of those names that is etched in my mind forever, like GM Place. I'm always going to think of it as GM Place. It's never going to be Rogers Arena in my mind's eye. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. They hand the Sharks a 5-2 defeat to kick off this five-game road trip in style. It's a game in which they were trailing one nothing and then uh, 2-1 and then scored four straight goals to take the victory and uh it was a fun game it was uh you know not not it I don't want to make too much out of this victory because ultimately why did the Canucks win on Wednesday night they won that game because Martin Jones is not particularly good and neither are the San Jose Sharks I think that is the big takeaway Uh, from that game overall. But, you know, this was also a game that they needed to win. This is the beginning of a five-game road trip that has some very difficult stops uh, ahead of them and very difficult situations to play in games as well. Uh, I know that they won the last time that they had a a big morning game. I would have to go back into the archives and check exactly when that was. I believe it was the 6-3 victory uh, against Buffalo back uh, earlier in January. But, uh, you know, historically, the Canucks do not fare well on these early morning weekend games. And they have two of them back-to-back coming up this weekend. First on Saturday at the Barclays Center to take on the red-hot New York Islanders, one of the best teams in the league. And then on Sunday morning before the Super Bowl at 11 a.m., against the Hurricanes in Carolina. And, of course, I'm sure you remember the last meeting between these two teams uh, that was a 1-0 overtime game uh, back in December, a spectacular victory for the Canucks, but a very tight-checking defensive battle, and I would expect the same sort of thing on Sunday. They follow it up on Tuesday of next week in Boston against the Bruins and then close out the road trip Thursday at Minnesota against the Wild. That's, you know, three games of five on this trip that are pretty difficult, to say the least. You know, uh, I think the Islanders, the Hurricanes, and the Bruins all in a row is a tough stretch of the schedule, no matter how you slice it. But when you throw in the fact that that's a weekend back-to-back, that both of the games against the Islanders and the Hurricanes are relatively early 11 a.m. is not quite as early as these morning games tend to be uh the Sunday one but still that's two games within uh 25 hours uh, a little earlier than the team would be used to I guess they're still on uh well yeah they're still on west coast time in their bodies like their internal clock does not change when you head out on the road like that playing a game at 10 a.m. I, I don't know about you, I'm not much of a morning person. Even around 10 a.m., I still am shaking off the cobwebs, personally, myself. Uh, I say as I record a podcast at close to 1 in the morning. But, uh, you know, if that's the case, if this is a difficult trip, and by all accounts it is going to be, then these were points that the Canucks needed to get in San Jose. And they did exactly that. They made it a little bit more interesting than they needed to, perhaps. But you know, it's a funny thing because... Maybe it's just the Sharks being the Sharks and Martin Jones being Martin Jones in particular. But, you know, I talked about my belief in this team on the last episode the other day, how I am confident at this point that they are going to make the playoffs. And yes, a lot of that has to do with a weak division and a weak conference and, you know, the same point totals in the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference, give you drastically different odds in terms of making the playoffs. So that all factors in as well. But I just believe in this team. And it is something that goes back to when I first started to push my chips in back in November, that game against the St. Louis Blues that, as I mentioned on the last episode, the Canucks did not even win. But they showed gumption. They showed spirit. They showed fight that had been missing from this team in years previous and that does factor into the way that I personally perceived the game on Wednesday night because I don't know about you but watching it I never really felt like that game was in doubt and in years previous if the Canucks go into a third period down even by one goal if they go into a third period trailing two to one you would think well I guess we'll better luck next time you know this is not going to be our night They just don't have the battle in them to come down from even a one goal deficit. That's just not who this team is. And yet, consistently, time and time again this year, that has been who this team is. It has been a part of their identity that they can climb back. You know, they had a bad first period the other night against the St. Louis Blues, the defending Stanley Cup champions. And yet, you know, there have been times. In this city, over the past decade, with any number of coaches, whether that's Elaine Vigneault or Willie Desjardins or John Tortorella or Travis Green, where it often has felt like this team needs to play perfect for 60 straight minutes if they want to have a chance. That has been the the way things have gone for the Canucks In multiple points over the previous decade. You know, obviously 2011 being the outlier there where that was just one of the best teams that uh, hockey has ever seen, quite frankly. Even if they did not win the Stanley Cup. Uh, They were, in the regular season, dominant on another level. Again, probably a product of a weak division overall, but let's not talk about that. They just, they, they led basically every statistical category. This has nothing to do with my broader point. I just like to reminisce about 2011 and the good parts of 2011 every so often. Regardless, you know, there have been times, no matter which coach it's been, where everything has to go right for this team for the entirety of 60 minutes. They can come undone just by playing four bad minutes of hockey and 56 good ones. That is the kind of team that they have been. Not the case this year. A bad first period against the St. Louis Blues uh, the other night uh, on Monday. Not a great first period on Wednesday night against the Sharks either. But at some point in the game, they get some kind of talking to during the intermission, and they come out and remember exactly who they are. They flip that switch and think, wait a second, we're the Vancouver Canucks. We're not out of this thing as of yet. And We're the Vancouver Canucks in a good way, by the way. Not, not what that had meant in previous years. So... Uh, Like, that's been part of the fun of this season is, like, as a viewer, I personally was never in doubt that the Canucks were going to come back and win that game. And watching the demeanor of the team as they went about their four-goal comeback to take the lead and the victory, I don't really feel like they thought it was a surprise they were doing that either. They came into the third period down 2-1, to one, and yet... You know, it, it didn't matter in the slightest. Um, just a, you know, a fantastic road effort. Uh, four goals in the third. Myers, Vertanen, Sutter, and Tanner Pearson. Let's break down all of the goals from this game the other night, shall we? I feel like that would be a fun thing to do because I think there's certain takeaways that we can uh, glean from every single one of them, but we'll do just that after the break. Hang on. Don't go anywhere. Right now, where were we? Right. Uh, talking about the goals. All five goals, in fact, from Wednesday night against the San Jose Sharks. Quinn Hughes gets the Canucks on the board at 11.08 of the first period. His sixth goal of the season. A seeing eye shot from the point that uh, didn't didn't deflect off anyone or anything on its way into the back of the net. Just a just perfectly placed point shot. And it was a quick one, too. Like... A pretty solid slapper from the kid who is on pace for 10 goals this season at the moment. I don't even know how many 10 goal scorers the Canucks had all of last year. Guys who broke double digits in goals, period. So uh pretty impressive stuff from Quinn Hughes. Especially like this is a rookie defenseman whose shot was not even uh, you know, a touted part of his skills package. Coming into this season, the fact that he is going to give them 10 goals from the back end if he continues to score at the pace that he has, and heck, might even outpace that because I feel like his scoring touch has only gotten better as the year has gone on. Is it a surprise that Tyler Myers uh, has scored fewer goals this season uh, than Quinn Hughes has? I mean, maybe not to some people, but I think it is on some level. Yes, Tyler Myers gets his fifth of the season as part of that third-period comeback to, uh, I believe, tie the game. His was uh, the second one of the night, yes, at 2.36 of the third, uh, and the comeback was on from there. But that was Myers' fifth goal of the season with an assist from Hughes. Hughes' 30th assist of the year, by the way. 36 points on the season already for Quinn Hughes' spectacular uh, production From the kid. You love to see it. But, uh, you know, I, I just, I look at Hughes' score, a goal like that, that got the Canucks on the board on Wednesday night, and I cannot help but think about how good he is going to be even just two years from now. Never mind three or four as his body continues to mature, because for someone to be able to shoot the puck like that with the kind of musculature that he has right now, look, just take a look at Elias Pettersson one year on from his rookie season, and how he has filled out uh, and become a more, uh, you know, m- muscular player and a stronger player on the puck. Uh, you know, his, his shot has always been tremendous. The fact that he was able to get it above a hundred miles per hour uh, as part of the hardest shot competition as the only forward. Uh, in that competition, and I believe recorded the second hardest shot that a forward has ever registered as part of that competition, that is kind of, you know, just goes to show the steps that these young players are going to take physically from year to year as their bodies just naturally sort of fill out because Quinn Hughes looks like a kid out on the ice quite often. And that's part of his... Appeal. It's part of his success as well, the fact that he is so fast and so quick and able to uh, kind of get himself out of tricky situations and catch up with the play if he is to fall behind or misread something somewhere or another. You know, he didn't have the greatest game on Monday night uh, against the St. Louis Blues, but it didn't really hurt the team in the end either, other than the opening goal necessarily. Uh, He was pretty strong on Wednesday and that goal a big part of it I just when you see a guy who can shoot the puck like that at his age and and the fact that you know if you were to list all of the things about Quinn Hughes that make him a special player that make him a treat to watch uh, in general for the Canucks this season you know his shot might not even crack the top five in terms of attributes and yet when he gets it off, when he, you know, elects to shoot it instead of trying to make these unbelievably fancy setup passes, he's got something there. And and that is a tantalizing thing for the future of this team and for the present of this team as well. The fact that he is giving them the production that uh, he is giving them at this exact moment, uh, it's, it's you know, pretty sweet to see. And I, I am very excited for... When he's got a little more muscle on those arms and can rip that puck even harder than he currently can. Because uh, if he's scoring goals like that right this second, look out in terms of what this guy is going to look like as a year two, year three uh, player. You know, just uh, it's going to be a real treat to behold. And as I look it up, the Canucks only had seven players last year who crossed the double digit threshold for goals scored all season. Eight, if you include Josh Levo, who scored some of those goals for the Toronto Maple Leafs before he arrived in Vancouver. Uh, And only one of those seven players was a defenseman, Alex Edler, who scored exactly 10 goals in what we thought was like one of the great resurgent seasons. One of the best seasons of his entire career, really. Uh, So if Quinn Hughes is on pace to equal that in year one, I would say things are going (laughs) Pretty well. <laughs> uh, beyond that, as I mentioned, Tyler Myers also got the team on the board to make it to two-two early in the third period. Jake Vertanen gets the go-ahead goal, however, what winds up being the game winner, and it's a spectacular one. Uh, it's an a lot. It's a lot of patience from Jake. The kind of you know mental processing that we hadn't seen earlier in his career or even earlier this season for the guy, honestly. I, I kind of made light of the fact uh, the other day on the show that people are still trying to get in their uh, little jabs at his hockey IQ when they are praising his current play to say, you know, he's just, they've removed all thinking from his game. He just has to play a fast, up-tempo north-south game, skate the puck hard, you know, get the puck to Elias Petterson or uh, JT Miller, they will find him with speed, if that is the case. uh, And look, it's because we don't want to admit that we uh, we were wrong about this guy's smarts, but there's not, you don't have to admit defeat on this. It's not mutually exclusive that, you know, Jake is making good plays now, and he wasn't before, you know? Both things can be true, that he never showed smarts up until this stretch of his career, and he's showing fantastic smarts right now. I mentioned it the other day. Playmaking has never been a real significant part of Jake Vertanen's game. The passes that he is making right now, whether it's to Elias Pettersson or certainly JT Miller and the the goals that Miller had in his two-goal performance the other day or or last week now, you know, fantastic. Fantastic. I guess that was actually Monday against St. Louis. You know, those are heads-up, dynamic passes from a genuine playmaker who knows what he is doing. But the fact that Jake looks smart right now in the way he's playing does not necessarily mean that those brains have always been there. You know, this is a guy who did look like a stupid player, for lack of a better word, who did not have playmaking ability, who could not make heads-up reads, who did not know how to uh, use his linemates effectively. That's always been the knock on him the entire time he's been an NHL player. That can still be the knock on him previously. You don't have to say, well, we were wrong about him, obviously, because a guy who makes plays like this is clearly smart. He is making smart plays right now, and that's fantastic and, and wonderful and should be you know one of the better stories of this season for the Canucks. The fact that their top line has taken another step when you've taken one of your smartest offensive players off of it and replaced it with one of your dumbest offensive players who happens to have foot speed that Brock Besser does not have. Adding that level of speed, a player that can keep up with Miller and Pedersen off the rush, which Besser cannot on most nights, unfortunately, has given that line an extra dimension, has taken their best line to another level. And is Jake a passenger on that line? Yes and no. Is he the smartest player on that line? Absolutely not. He's probably three of three in any metric you want to look at in terms of you know, uh, what you're looking for in an offensive player, but he has made that line better. Whether that's a fit that works out over the long haul doesn't really matter because you can always go back to Elias Pettersson, uh and Brock Besser as a duo or a trio with JT Miller. You can always go back to that lotto line. And if, you know, you need to switch it up in the playoffs, if you need to give your lineup a different look, that's what this stage of the season should be about. For Travis Green at this point is finding different looks that work because you can always go back to Old Faithful, the the combinations that you've leaned on through thick and thin for the majority of the season. There are going to be times, however, when you play against certain teams that play certain styles that you need to change things up and play a different way. And if there's anybody who's going to allow you to do that with your top line anyways, Look, Jake Vertanen gives you that added speed, that ability to burn teams off the rush. Playmaking in stride, in transition. That is not something that Brock Besser gives you necessarily. Brock Besser is still a very talented player. I don't I don't think just because they found a player who fits on that top line, that this is a team that should be going out looking to trade Brock Besser. Far from it. You know? If Louis Erickson is having success on this second line at the moment, then good for Louis Erickson, but we all know that that is not going to last. And ultimately, if it ends up that Besser ends up back on the line with Bo Horvat, you know, maybe next season or down the stretch in his career, that has been a dependable duo for you in the past, and it can shine again. There are all kinds of ways that this team can use Brock Besser successfully, without having to you know, deal him away just because Jake Vertanen is, is playing well right now. The propensity of fans and media alike in this city at the moment to look at the success that this team is having and deciding that it needs to be broken up immediately. What the hell? What are you talking about? Why have we gone through all of these struggles to build a team that looks like it is on the poise of doing some damage in the postseason? only to blow it up before they even get there. Brock Besser, no matter what line he's playing on right now, is an important part of this team. And the same goes for Jake Vertanen, who is having very positive impacts. Look, probably on both sides of the puck, really. Like I don't see uh, the the Pedersen line getting their heads caved in defensively, really, at the moment. In fact, one of the best things uh, about, I believe it was the Myers goal... Uh, that got the Canucks uh tied up is that Pedersen won the faceoff in the offensive zone. The one thing that he has, you know, been bad at for the majority of his career when we talk about, you know, wanting to see what Quinn Hughes looks like down the stretch here, uh not just in this season and as he takes, you know, significant strides in his game into uh the future in years going on and on, I want to know what this team looks like when you can reasonably rely on every single centerman to win you a draw. Because Adam Godette and Elias Pettersson, and I've talked about this on the show before, they cannot win faceoffs right now. They are very sheltered in that capacity. When they get to a point where both of those guys have picked up the art, because it is an art, and Manny Malhotra is as good of a teacher as you're going to get, the fact that he is a part of this team's coaching staff and he can do that work with the centermen on this club is essential. It's fantastic. It's like, you know... Uh, I, you, you never really like to see alumni getting jobs just for the sake of getting jobs, but Malhotra has that knowledge that he can pass on and impart when this team has four centermen that you can put out and will reliably win the draw between 55 and 60% of the time. Look out. If you've been a listener of this podcast, I'm sure you've heard all the great advertisers working with Locked On to reach sports fans, but you may not know that Locked On Canucks is a great way for your local business to reach passionate Canucks fans just like you. Unlike any other podcast, Locked On gives your local company the unique ability to reach local podcast listeners. Not just any podcast listener, a Locked On podcast listener. If your company wants to connect with Canucks fans and a predominantly male audience that is well-educated with disposable income, then let's put your company right here on this Locked On podcast. Local fans love to support local businesses. Text the word ADVERTISING to 33777 or visit LockedOnPodcasts.com slash advertising and let us know who you are. We'll get our team to help your team achieve Locked On advertising success. Once again, text the word ADVERTISING to 33777, that's 33777, or visit LockedOnPodcasts.com slash advertising. We look forward to hearing from you. That leaves Brandon Sutter's goal, which was initially attributed uh, to Jay Beagle. Beagle gets the primary assist on it. Set up largely by the hard work of J.T. Miller. A fantastic read from Miller to uh, lead that rush down the ice and then put the puck into a dangerous area where you know those fourth-line guys converted. Nice to see some production from down the lineup. Brandon Sutter, you know, he's been back in the lineup for a little while now, playing wing on the fourth line predominantly. And it's a good sign for this team, you know. It shouldn't be looked at, I mean, yes. Overall, in the grand scheme, it's like Louis Erickson's contract. These, these are dollars that are going to need to go somewhere else when it comes time to pay the Piper and actually pay Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson what they're worth. This is a luxury for the time being that this team gets to play guys like Brandon Sutter on their fourth line. Uh, it's not going to be like this for much longer, but, you know, hey, soak it up. You know, I I don't like Brandon Sutter as a third-line player. I don't like Brandon Sutter's contract. Do I like what Brandon Sutter brings to a fourth line in the role that he's in right now? Absolutely I do. So it's a luxury. It's not something that the team can necessarily afford long-term, probably past even just this season. But in the meantime, as they look to make the playoffs and, you know, be a team that has depth, this is not a team that should be going out to add anything at the trade deadline. This is not a team that should be going out to make any sort of moves whatsoever at the trade deadline. They have a good thing going in their room right now with the group that they have. They are going to get an emotional lift with the returns of both Josh Levo and Michael Furland down the stretch here. This is a team that already has two injured players that's going to provide them exactly what you would want from deadline acquisitions, and they already have depth. You know, even even a guy like Jordy Ben, who's not currently in the lineup, is the kind of defenseman that you would go out and grab for depth at the deadline. They did their deadline shopping already. They did it in the offseason. They also have Sven Berchi and guys like that. If it were to come to that, this team has significant depth right now at pretty well every position and does not need to go out and spend assets to bring guys in at the deadline, of course, if you get offers for some of the depth that you have that you 're not necessarily using at the moment, like a Sven Beci, then hey, sure, make a move like that if you can If you can deal guys out and get some picks back in return, and it doesn 't hurt you because they 're not guys that you have an interest in playing, then sure i 'm in favor of moves like that, but you know this is not this is not a team that should be looking at rentals is what i 'm trying to say, especially when you have guys like Brandon Sutter. On your fourth line. Closing out the game, Tanner Pearson with his fifth empty net goal of the season. He leads the league in that regard, and all kinds of people want to make hay out of the fact that, you know, it's a mirage, this production that the insurance line has given you. I like calling them the ICBC line because, yes, it's insurance, but. They cost you a lot as well, as far as dollars go. Uh, Tanner Pearson, Bo Horvat, and Louis Erickson, they keep getting empty net goals. It's a big meme when Louis scores in the empty net, of course, and uh, just uh, how intense and, and combative he becomes when the goalie is on the bench. But there's a reason that those guys are on the ice in those moments. You know, you can say that their offensive point totals have been inflated because They are scoring in empty nets, but being out there, having the opportunity to score on an empty net means you are being relied on to close games out. And they are consistently doing that night in and night out. You know, I can't think of the last time this team was up a goal in the final minute and conceded it to let the game go to overtime. Has it happened at some point in the season? Yeah, absolutely. It must have. You know, law of averages dictates... That's something that happens over the course of an NHL season. But if I can't remember the last time it happened, and this t- is a you know a trio that's been riding together for about 15 games or so now, and I can't recall it happening once over that span, when that, they have been the trio that are out on the ice to close out games time after time after time, that is a very good sign. That means that these guys are doing exactly what they're supposed to do, which is score on the empty net and make sure nothing goes in to the net Behind them. So, you know, you cannot complain about empty net goal production boosting these guys' offensive totals when they're being asked to do more than just contribute offense. And their defensive assignment is working very effectively. That is why they are scoring those empty net goals. And it should count as a reward for being able to do the defensive task that is asked of them. And that's our show for the night. Uh, As mentioned, I will be back later on Friday with uh, another episode to tee up the Islanders game on Saturday morning and then get you a post-gamer on Saturday in the afternoon, breaking down that morning game as well. So uh, look forward to that over the course of the weekend. Should have a a post-gamer late on Sunday after uh, the Hurricanes game, too. So packed weekend, full of episodes, full of Canucks hockey, full of Canucks hockey to talk about. So look forward to that. Uh, in the meantime, I have been and will continue to be Justin Morissette. You can do me a solid by heading on over to the Apple Podcast Store, wherever you happen to get this show, and leaving me a uh, rating and a review. Always like uh, reading the kind words that people have to say about this program. Helps keep me going, you know. Helps, uh, helps keep the engine alive when uh, I don't always feel like doing this on a daily basis. But um, I will be back over the course of the weekend. Plenty to talk about. Uh, until then, you've been locked in on Locked On Canucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.